Good day. This is Michael Muth of Going Global International Interviews. Today we're speaking with Mike Jacob, uh, Chief Operations Officer at Sport Vision. And we're talking with Mike about uh, implementing new technologies in broadcasting sports on television. Uh, you can learn more about Sport Vision at www.sportvision.com. Uh, edited transcripts of this interview are available at intlalliances.com and midwestbusiness.com. And we're going to stay recording, so we should be recording. So it's Mike Jacob of Fort Vision, and we might as well jump right into the questions. Um, what technological advancements have you created for international sports networks? Sure. You know, our uh, primary focus is in the U.S. Currently, um, you know, this is a company that got their start doing the glowing hockey puck uh, for Fox Sports ten years ago. Uh, ten years ago this year, um, so it's sort of the first kind of virtual breakthrough enhancement on the uh, in broadcast sports television. Um, since then, we've moved into a number of different areas, including the uh, first and ten line, the first down line between Vendors and Cable and other things. So, um, our primary focus is in the U.S. Um, we have done a fair amount of work for U.S. Clients overseas. So, uh, Olympic Games is probably the uh, one where we do the most work. Uh, and typically, we're doing those just uh, on the behalf of, of NBC. Mm -hmm. um, so, we've been to the last four Olympiads. Um, we've done some things for tennis at Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. uh, we've uh, done the British Open a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple of odds and ends here and there. It is something that we're actively focusing on right now. We have a group of working with in Asia uh, trying to roll out some of our baseball enhancements, uh, especially in Japan. Baseball is a very big sport over there. Um, so we're in the process of looking at a couple of deals over there, and we also are talking to a number of motorsport series in Europe, uh, Formula One, A1, uh, some of the larger uh, series over there, which uh, we obviously have a big motorsports presence here in the U.S., with NASCAR and uh, the IRL. Okay. You want to get into a few of the details of sure. everything that you've done for us. So what have you done specifically for the last a couple of the last Olympics? So, um, you know, the last Olympiad was in Torino, uh, the Winter Olympics, and we did several different types of effects. Uh, in long-form speed skating, we did uh, skater tracking. So what we did is we built a system and installed a series of tracking cameras that we uh, put in the rafters of the, of the ice rink, and we were able to optically track the skaters and measure them down to the hundredth of a second as to where they were as they were going around the track. And what that allowed us to do was put little graphics on the screen in real time to show, you know, the, this Korean skater is, you know, this far ahead of this, you know, West German skater, and actually see in real time where they are on the track and whether they're ahead or behind the leader's pace, you know, both the pace of the skater that they're against in that heat, but also the leader's pace. Uh, we also virtually inserted the uh, flag representing the country of the skater and their name on the ice, because in long track, oh, if you in a long track speed skating, they switch, there's an inside lane and an outside lane, and halfway through, and each time they go around, they switch lanes. Mm -hmm. So to keep track of where they are, we, we laid these flags on the ice, mm -hmm. uh, virtually inserted those. Um, basically a derivative of the technology we used to put the yellow first down line in American football. And uh, we did it so well that NBC was getting flooded with calls, people saying, you know, you know, how, how, do, you paint those, how do you paint those flags every race? How are you doing that that fast? 
Uh, we didn't realize it was virtual. Um, so that's one series of effects we did in speed skating. Um, we also did, um, uh, on ski jumping, we also laid lines on the hill. So on the landing hill for the uh, Nordic ski jumping event, you could lay down a line to say, you know, this year's first jump was here, the current leader is here, the Olympic record is here. So you can see visually exactly how far the skier has to go on landing each of those jumps to, to pass each of those marks. Uh, we did that, and then we did um, sort of a partnership with a company called Dartfish, which is uh, based in Switzerland. And they have two technologies, which we are the exclusive distributor of in North America. One's called Promotion, and one's called Simulcam. Uh, Simulcam is actually uh, a technology that allows you to take two video images and lay them on top of each other. And these are best used in some of the alpine skiing events. So you can take, um, you know, the leader's run down a hill uh, in a giant foam or downhill race and then have that running at the same time as you're running the current person down the hill. And what that does is it shows you exactly, you know, at each point on the hill where one skier was relative to the other. And it's unbelievably compelling. In fact, uh, NBC had a great use of it in the men's downhill. Um, the, there's a, uh, the French skier actually won the men's downhill this year, and uh, the Austrian was in the lead, and they showed um, exactly, you know, there's one jump on the hill where the Austrian kind of went off, he got a little bit off balance, and you saw him fly higher than he wanted to, and the skiers were neck and neck until that jump, and he kind of flew a little bit higher, and the French skier stayed in position. And as soon as he landed that jump, he was, you know, basically about as far behind as he finished. And so they were able to show exactly where on the course, um, you know, things went off. It is. It, in fact, it's funny you, you mentioned that because Dartfish's primary um, business is training. So they sell these systems to trainers and coaches, um, and that's, that's their primary market. We partner with them to take these effects to broadcast because it makes great broadcast enhancements that we work on, and it's also good promotion for them. So we did that. We also did um, the strobe motion effect, which is kind of a strobe-like effect that you can, you know, for example, for half pipe uh, on the snowboard, and you can see somebody coming up and taking a, a jump, and you can sort of freeze different images as they, as they make that jump. So at least kind of a, a trail of the athlete or a ball or something like that. Uh, we did that in, in snowboarding and uh, a couple of other events. So. Yeah, you can say that. Sure. We also, again, through uh, the stro motion, the simulcan, um, we did stro motion for platform diving in Athens. Uh, it actually won the Emmy, the, the sports broadcast Emmy for the best human technology of the year uh, in ninety. Well, sorry, two thousand and four, when the Olympics were. We also did that on on some gymnastics events as well. Um, now, I think you also mentioned Wimbledon. Yes. So, what we did uh, at Wimbledon, that was probably four or five years ago. It was a while ago. Um, we came up with something we called Tennis Tracker, which, um, again, using the optical tracking uh, in interface processing to track something optically, we would track each of the players and measure exactly how far they ran during a set, during a match. Uh, and it came up with some pretty unbelievable statistics. You know, basically, you, you see somebody playing tennis and you realize that they're physically demanding, but you don't realize in the course of a match, you know, they're covering, you know, 
like running six or seven miles. I mean, it's a, it's a long, it's a, it's a lot of distance they're covering. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so that was, um, I'd say, modestly successful. We only used it a couple of times. Um, you know, we, we've kind of come up with something um, that is uh, a bit of a touchstone for us when we think about new effects. You know, we there's three main criteria things have to, to hit. Uh, the first is it has to be something that's hard to see. Mm -hmm. uh, when we're talking about, you know, for our cast enhancement. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to happen a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and it needs to be important to the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so if you use those three, you know, compare that to the tennis tracker, you know, it's hard to see how far they're running. Uh, it does happen a lot, they're constantly running. But is it important to the outcome? At the end of the day, it's not really important. Um, you know, you can... Both of them are probably going to be running a lot. Yeah. When you win or lose, it's not going to be the guys who run far this Exactly. It's an interesting stat, but it's not central to the element of the sport. Right, something like the first and ten line, you know, getting a first down is the main objective the whole point through uh, a football game. And, you have to, and it's hard to see because if they're not framing the shot, but you can see the sideline, you don't know exactly where the marker is. Um, and it's important to the outcome. So, you know, that's kind of the, the, the uh, framework we use to evaluate things when we talk about broadcast effects. It kind of felt, yeah. We don't get it right 100% of the time. You know, it's a very difficult business, and um, you know, you have a few hits, you have a few misses. Um, but we've gotten a lot smarter over the years about what makes compelling content. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe you said you've also worked with the British Open. Yeah. Um, I would say that's also an example of something that's sort of with an interesting element, but probably not a core or killer, you know, killer effect. Uh, what we did for the, the British Open was a project called T-Velocity, where it's a, it's a radar-based system, and we could use that to measure uh, the swing speed of the, of the club uh, for each respective player, and also the ball speed off of the club. Uh, and we would combine those two with a little uh, math into an algorithm that we came up with for smash factor. And what that would tell you is basically um, you know, how fast the club was swung, how how and how fast the ball left, um, and it was it, it was a pretty good measure of how how well the player did in terms of hitting the ball in the sweet spot of the club, how much energy was transferred from the club to the ball, which is ultimately what we're trying to do, you know, uh, in a shot. And again, it was something that was interesting, but just because you hit hit the shot square or hit it hard, again, it's not necessarily a great predictor of the success of that player in the event. So you didn't come up with anything with the Tiger Woods versus John Davis? Yeah, I mean, you can come up with some interesting statistics and you can see somebody like Tiger has incredibly fast club speed um, and hits the ball well. And, you know, and on that measure, he would look good relative to some of the other players. But again, um, there's other players who hit the ball just because you hit, you know you leave the the tour and average driving distance. Actually, they're not the same person who's winning every match. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's not a huge guy, but he's he's pretty well. He's pretty fit compared to a lot of the guys in the tour. He's, he's notorious for. Uh, Hitting the gym after every round and, and getting his workouts. So. Yeah. My brother-in-law is from Scotland, and you know when we talk about athletes and, and so on, 
you know, I grew up in the example of Craig Scandler, and, you know, you can't argue how great some of the Right. Great coordination and hand-to-eye and all that kind of stuff. It's a different kind of thing. You wouldn't pick out of a lineup on the street to see professional athletes. Um, now, I also mentioned a couple different things that may be potential sanctions for you. Sure. And I think you might have mentioned that you were thinking about doing something with, I think it's the European car show, but anything else to do with European golf field as opposed to the CGA? Um, right now we're not working with the, with the European tour. Again, the, probably the way to help understand, you know, where we are overall internationally with a lot of those events is, um, you know, what we do for broadcast is, is fairly, it's very technical and it's very labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, both of those are, are, are overcomable, overcomable obstacles when you look at doing things overseas. Mm-hmm. The main issue we've had so far with going overseas is um, viewer tastes and preferences and broadcaster budgets. Yeah. To put it bluntly, mm-hmm. um, you know the U.S. is a, is a is the biggest you know market in terms of uh, advertising spending for televised sporting events in the world, mm-hmm. um, and so the productions tend to have the largest budgets, and they tend to be more able to afford extras than other other spots. Um, there certainly are you know big events over in Europe, World Cup, Olympics. Um, you know, different companies have different countries have different tastes. You know, in Norway, it's ski jumping, and China, it's table tennis, and you know, I mean, it's it's just kind of interesting to see what's the number one televised sporting event around the world, um, country by country. But the main issue is, is viewer taste. You know, the U.S. broadcast viewers are used to seeing lots of enhancements, lots of things on the screen. Uh, over in Europe, they tend to have a much more clean broadcast. They tend not to like to have. Uh, you know, things placed on the field or sponsors or, um, you know, they're just not used to seeing kind of the, the sort of things that you're used to in the U.S. in terms of watching that. Um, so would they rather have the advertising uniforms as opposed to the broadcast? It's ironic when you say that, but yes. I mean, that's, I mean it's the case. You watch, you watch um, Premier League soccer or football, and, you know, every jersey is a sponsor, which, you know, People in the U.S. would say, oh my God, how crass. You know, we'd never allow a sponsor to be on a uniform. But um, if you think about it, you know, the NFL, the logo you see on the field is Reebok. Right? They pay a lot of money to provide those jerseys, and they are. The league, the leagues cut those deals. So, so it's interesting. Right. College football is different for NCAA. Um, and the NFL is only three sponsors or logos you'll see in the field of play. Reebok, um, Motorola in the headset mm-hmm. on the sideline, and Gatorade. Mm-hmm. And otherwise you probably won't see a logo in the field of play. Mm-hmm. Except for okay. the shoes. Except for the shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're allowed to wear whatever shoes they want. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so anyway, so again, you know, international is a big focus for us. Um, we started to go to some conferences. Um, there's the, the big international conference called Portel Monaco. It happens in the fall of the year. We've gone over there. We've exhibited, um, had a series of meetings. Um, and, you know, we're actually looking for uh, opportunistic ways to, to start a bu- to start our business uh, and establish it over there. And probably through existing products like baseball in Japan or 
um, you know, motorsports in Europe. Uh, those are probably the, the, the two best opportunities for us right now. Baseball in Latin America isn't a good opportunity uh, because Latin earns much more than everything production values in Asia. Or I don't know if I would say because they um, earn as much. It's just that from the standpoint of um, you know, broadcasts are supported by advertising dollars, and the amount of money spent on advertising dollars in Japan is going to be bigger than the amount of advertising dollars spent on a uh, Latin American baseball game. And so if there's not as much money spent on, on the advertisements, then there's going to be less money spent on the, on the production. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Latin America. As far as my previous comment to viewer case, you'll see um, in Latin America, if you watch a, a football or a soccer game in Latin America, completely different. They're not at all shy about having logos dancing on the sidelines and coming up out of the field and animating and a big giant truck comes out of the, you know, the center of the field during a timeout in a, in a soccer game and drives across the field or a big Coke bottle, you know, comes out of the stands. I mean, so sort of a different mentality in terms of what's acceptable in terms of, uh, you know, displaying logos and sponsors on the broadcast. But the advertising money is there, so it's not as right to market, it sounds like. Not compared to the U.S., no. Okay. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned sports viewership by country. Can you give a couple examples of sports that we wouldn't expect to think of here in the States that are big in other countries? You know, is table tennis the most watched sport in China? You know, there's, there's different sort of... Uh, you know, you get different statistics from different companies, but I've seen a couple that say, you know, in China, table tennis is just always near the top in terms of sports viewership. Um, in Norway, the, um, you know, cross-country skiing and, and sort of the, the, uh, the Nordic skiing events is typically near the top. Jumping in. Yeah. Well, the biathlon, I mean, what's more exciting than skiing and shooting at the same time, right? I mean... <laughs> so uh, yeah, but it is interesting, you know, the um, the local pace, country by country, in terms of what what's big. You know, there are some you know commonalities. Certainly, Premier League soccer in in Europe is is huge, um, but also you know some of these sports. We always we tend to be very uh, ethnocentric in the U.S. and think that you know if we like it, everyone must like it. Of course, you know, because for America. But if you look at um, NASCAR, for example, which is the number one motorsports series in the U.S. and second only to NFL in terms of U.S. viewership on a, on a you know, specific broadcast window. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the U.S., nobody cares about NASCAR. Um, we're starting to see some interest you know, in Mexico and a little bit in Canada just because of the proximity of the U.S., but you compare the ratings for a NASCAR race versus the ratings for a Formula One race, uh, and Formula One will get ten times the amount of viewers in NASCAR race will in the US. I guess on the other side then, how big is Grand Prix racing here in the United States with the Formula One car? Well, uh, not big at all. Yeah, I don't think so, because you don't see your Right. So um, and I think there's ways to change that. I, you know, primarily it's you know, it's a sort of a foreign series to the to the U.S. viewer, they're not—they don't not used to seeing the ratings, uh, seeing the races. Um, 
you know, they don't have a consistent broadcast field. CBS does one or two events a year. The rest of them are on speed channels, kind of relegated to the, you know, niche, you know, content channels. Maybe not as many people are watching. Um, part of it is the quality of the broadcast. You know, we think if you watch a NASCAR, I mean, we have talked about our NASCAR system, but our system called RaceFX. Um, what we do is we uh, have a, it's part of a long-standing partnership with NASCAR that we're in our sixth year right now. We actually outfit every car with a GPS uh, receiver mm-hmm. and, uh, and some other proprietary electronics. And what that allows us to do is using, uh, you know, global GPS satellites, we can track the position of every car on the track. So within two centimeters, as it's going, you know, 42 cars are going 180 miles an hour around the track. Um, and what that allows us to do is a number of different things. We can um, put pointers in the video, so you can have an arrow that's pointing right at that car and says, you know, this car right here is Jeff Gordon. You can put a headshot up and his title. So um, you can kind of explain to viewers at home who that is. You can also put up graphics that show, uh, you know, Jeff Gordon is in fourth place behind Casey Kane, and he's exactly, you know, this many seconds behind in real time. We can put up a dashboard and show you where his brake, where his throttle is, RPMs. Um, we can, you know, do all kinds, we gather all kinds of information to the point where the effects that we do in NASCAR, you'll see an average of 100 to 130 times a, a three-hour telecast. So um, the kind of things that, we're, that we do for somebody like NASCAR, it's become, viewers at home have become very accustomed to seeing those things, and to them it's part of the viewing experience. When you watch a Formula One race, you know, you've got camera angles and maybe an in-car camera here and there, but you don't get a lot of that content. And so the mere fact that some of these sports don't have some of these technologies that, that we are able to put into the U.S. Um, sports makes that, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you're a big sports fan, but if you ever watch classic sports television, put it on sometime when they show, a, you know, an NBA game from the middle 70s. I mean, try watching that telecast now. There's no score. There's no clock on the screen. It's one camera going like this back and forth, following up and down. And the athletes aren't better, you know. The, you know, it's not that they're more skilled now than they used to be, but the way that that story is presented is so much more compelling now. It's so much more informative that it's really hard to watch a game, you know, that just doesn't have all those enhancements. And it's sort of analogous to some of the telecasts of uh, some of these European events in the U.S. I graduated from college the year cable television was on. So I went to college with other teams, ESPN, MTV, all that kind of stuff. And looking at some of this stuff now, it's kind of hard to believe how we got along the line. Right. Although, you say earlier that you were extending what you're doing in automotive to European European Grand Prix Formula One kinds of things. Well, what are you taking there and what aren't you taking? So, um, you know, right now we're we're looking to put together the business deal that would allow that to happen. Um, but you know, once we're able to do that, then you know, all of these types of things that we're um, talking about, able to do for uh, the IRL or NASCAR, you know, would be you know very applicable to what's going on over in Formula One and A One and some of those other series. Um, might as well quickly go through some of these other things that are here in the States and talk about potential extensions to other places. Sure. Um, are there other countries where they're using the glowing hockey puck? They're not right now. Actually, that was a, uh, as I mentioned, that was kind of the, the effect that launched this company 10 years ago. 
um, and something that uh, got mixed reviews at the time. Um, it was, from a technological standpoint, it was groundbreaking. Nobody had ever done anything like it. I mean, we were able to, you know, outfit a puck with um, infrared sensors and track that, and using those, you know, infrared light, track that, that puck in real time. And basically what it allows to do is put a glow around the puck, and um, when the, you know, on a shot, when the puck was above a certain speed, we'd put a little bit of a trail on it so you could follow it. Um, and also, you know, we had also did an effect sort of when the puck was on the near side on the boards where you couldn't see it from the camera angle, it actually showed like a little light so you could see with a sort of superimposed puck, you can see exactly what the puck was. It gave the appearance of kind of an x-ray vision along the board. Um, and what happened was really interesting. Overall, hockey ratings went up. And, you know, the ultimate arbiter of the success of our products are, you know, does it attract more sponsorship dollars? Do the ratings go up? meaning more people are watching it and you can charge more for the existing, you know, commercial spots? Or can you take the content generated off of these systems that we've deployed and develop internet or wireless, you know, subscription-based opportunities? And with the hockey, you know, the ratings actually went up. There was a fairly, you know, good firestorm in the media where a lot of the hockey writers and a lot of the hockey purists thought it was blasphemy. Now, what is Fox doing to our to our beloved sport. I mean, there's a halo on the puck and there's a trail. I mean, I mean, it was sort of the public stir to the point where David Letterman did a, uh, after debut on the All-Star, NHL All-Star game that year, David Letterman kind of did a skit where they put like a glowing disc on his head. They had, you know, Dave Letterman can and they shoot from overhead and they have like a big glowing disc on his head so you can see where Dave's head was at all times. And, you know, that's how kind of groundbreaking this thing was. Um, See, that attracts attention and that's and that was the whole point. So um, while the purists hated and said, you know, what are you doing to my sport? You know, you're, you're trashing it and the hockey writers didn't like it. It was there for all of the other people who were casual fans or not fans at all to draw them in. And it also made it work because the ratings went up, which meant more people were watching the event. But, it, you know, it was done to the point where the purists really didn't like it at all. And after Fox lost, uh, it ran for three years, and then after Fox lost the NHL deal and it went over to ESPN, ESPN decided it was too closely associated with Fox, and so they decided not to renew it. So at this point, um, that system is not being deployed anywhere, but, um, you know, we're looking at doing similar things now. So, for example, they never used it as Hockey Bank in Canada, the CBC? No. Because that would have been, you know, I mean, a moment of period. Right, right. I work for Canada in business development. Whenever you go up there from October through May or June, these days, it's not the sports pages, it's just the hockey pages. Right. Yeah. Um, it, 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 sorry, this sparked another thought for me, which is that, um, you know, it, it's funny. You go back 10 years and you go to now and you look at sort of the telecast and where things are going. Um, for a long time, we would see video games trying to imitate the things that we were doing on a telecast. So about seven or eight years ago in Madden, you know, Madden football for the PlayStation and the Xbox, you know, they, they started putting a yellow first and ten line in the game. 
Um, they started showing some of the other effects we were doing for Sunday Night Football and Monday Night Football. Um, the baseball games now have a, a, a virtual strike zone that looks just like the K-Zone we do on Sunday Night Baseball. So for a long time, it was, uh, you know, the video games are getting more and more realistic. The graphics, you know, uh, rendering power was getting higher and higher to the point where, I don't know if you're a gamer or, or kids who play games or, or see them, but um, it, it's pretty unbelievable. It's almost, it's not quite video quality, but it's getting darn close as you get some of these new yeah, I think systems. You can tell facial features now. Really oh, you, you, can, you can definitely tell facial features and, they, and all the work they do through motion capture and, you know, everything else. But the point is, for a long time, it was the video games trying to copy what we were doing on TV. Now, the reverse is happening. Now, life is imitating art because now, uh, us and the folks who produce these, you know, big-time sporting events for all the networks, we're now going to the games and seeing what they're doing and trying to figure out how to get that because that's what the kids are used to seeing, trying to figure out how to get those effects and put them in the video. So, for example, if you play the hockey game now, when the, the active skater who's, who's got the pucker that you're controlling, the little glowing disc that moves around in that player. So as you're look, looking at the screen, you can easily identify who's the active player. Mm-hmm. We're now looking at technologies to bring that glowing disc from the player to, to the broadcast video so that people can sort of, have, you know, extend that experience from the gaming platform into the video. In that case, in the business issue, were you able to trademark, copyright, those kinds of things so that you're paid for your creation when the video games are, are using those kinds of technology or emulating those kinds of technology? If we were successful in doing that, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. <laughs> so, um, we, I mean, we do have a very large uh, intellectual property portfolio. Um, we've got, I think, 33 issued and, and pending patents. Um, we have some trademarks, uh, but it's very difficult to trademark something like the yellow line in a broadcast. Um, and thus far, we've been flattered by uh, the, the use of those products, but we have not been able to, uh, to monetize them. So it's good for them, it's good for you. So there's some usual benefits there. And I guess back to the hockey. Um, lacrosse is getting more popular. Is it possible to extend that kind of technology to follow lacrosse ball just to follow the hockey ball? Definitely. Um, you know, the I'm not sure if we would use the same technology from hockey as we would use in lacrosse. Um, step back a second, you know, we have sort of three main core competencies, if you will, in terms of producing these effects. We um, have a deep expertise in virtual imaging. So, you know, putting a yellow line on the football field, under the, making it appear that it's under the, the feet of the players, putting a virtual ad behind home plate, which we're going to do on the Cubs-Sox game tomorrow down at the U.S. Cellular, um, laying a shot chart on the floor for an NBA game. So that, that's all virtual imaging. Um, we also have uh, deep expertise in remote sensing. So... Um, for hockey, that's what that was. We actually put receivers in the puck and we were able to track that via IR. In NASCAR, we put GPS receivers in, in, in the cars. And it's typically having to recognize the current sound I understand, is getting very big in this kind of stuff, too. Have you transferred or, or transformed from the infrared to RFID, or is it other competitors that are doing that? Um, well, no one is actually doing what we're doing using RF right now. Um, RF as a technology 
Um, there's a number of issues in terms of um, signal uh, noise and uh, signal strength that you need to have to do certain things. So, for example, in NASCAR, GPS is the most reliable technology, and that's the technology we're using. Mm -hmm. um, we have looked at RF to, to take that technology and extend it to another sport, specifically horse racing. Mm -hmm. uh, so in horse racing, we've, we've done some things and built some systems to, to do similar to what we do in NASCAR and IRL to extend that to horse racing. And we came up with a, you know, what we have in NASCAR that sits in the car that weighs about 25 pounds. Can't spat 25 pounds on a jockey or a horse. Uh, if you could, I'm not sure where you'd put it. Um, so we came up with a vest that jockeys could wear that has a GPS receiver in it that weighed less than a pound. They could wear it under their silk. Um, and we got pretty far of that system, and we're still um, fine-tuning it and looking for the right business application or idea there. Um, but RF is something that may work better in a sport like horse racing, given the size. Um, in hockey, um, part of the problem is, you know, with an RF-based system, the, the amount of receivers you would need to have to, to catch that signal from all the different angles and the strength that that would have to be um, doesn't really make that technology conducive to, to tracking it. It, it, it work as well as IR, IR does here. Um, but just to sort of um, finish my thoughts, so there was virtual imaging, there's remote sensing, and the third one is object tracking. And that's what we're doing in baseball with K-Zone and the pitch track. And that is, um, and, you know, with skater tracking in the Olympics, that's using um, image-based processing to track it's an object. The combination of the first two. It is, except the, the key difference is that you, you, you aren't putting a sensor on the object to track it. You're, you're basically shooting it from multiple different angles, and based on what you know about geometry in the real world and where the video is, you're able to calibrate where that object is in the video and how that translates to the real world. When you ultimately render that effect, you then use virtual imaging to do that. So a lot of our technologies incorporate multiple of these competencies that we have. Mm -hmm. But um, so, you know, so it's kind of a long answer to your question, but I wanted to give you the background. The, when we talk about extending, you know, something like uh, the hockey system to lacrosse, uh, it's probably not the hockey system because we're probably not going to put an infrared receiver in a lacrosse ball. But what we could do is we could use, you know, um, optical tracking to track that ball. Um, we could certainly use virtual imaging to lay all kinds of key, you know, defensive zones or, you know, play charts or things like that on the field. Uh, and really the only limit right now is the size of the audience and the ultimate production budget that's available from the broadcaster to support something like that. And I'm going to say the problem and I know it's growing and yet you, but to translate it. And it is Canada's official national sport, which a lot of people don't know. So That's a, get that word out. That is a good point. I, I did not know that. I mean, things happen, but it's Okay. You've already mentioned the game zone. I think people understand what it is. Are there further applications, say, to cricket or other similar games to baseball? There are. We've actually um, we've looked at some things in cricket. Um, you know, in baseball, you know, what we're trying to show is the pitch itself. Um, we started with K-Zone, which is tracking, you know, again, within about 
four-tenths of an inch where that ball is relative to the strike zone when it crosses the front plane of the plate, which is the definition of, of the strike zone. We've now extended that technology, and, instead of, and we can now track the entire length of the pitch. So um, we're in the process of rolling out our initiative now where we'll have tracking systems, and we can actually uh, show you the entire length of the pitch. So instead of just where, where it was relative to crossing the strike zone, you can now see the break on the pitch for the first time. You can track the whole length of the pitch. You can come up with all kinds of you know, unbelievable new statistics, things like... Um, you know, the amount of break on this pitcher's curveball versus that pitcher's curveball. Whether the amount of break is, you know, decreasing between the first inning and the seventh inning. So it really provides some really interesting data. Um, and when you look at cricket, um, you know, the shape of the pitch, um, putting a trail on that pitch, measuring the curve and the spin, those are all things that you would want to be able to do. Um, and so we're starting to look at, at some of the applications that might extend that pitch tracking to the cricket. Um, the growth is easy. I'm sure the advertising dollars and those kinds of things are an issue there, but there are more all the time. No, there, those are some big, uh, those are some major, you know, televised sporting events. In fact, I think cricket may be, you know, for India, I think that may be the number one sporting event in India, under the television areas. Um, there are some companies out there that are doing some things overseas with cricket virtual enhancements, but right now those are all sort of, you know, they're tracking the, the, the pitch uh, in cricket, but they're then translating that into a virtual world. So those folks are listening even yet and show you, you know, what that pitch looks like um, virtually. Um, but not as... Really yeah, something like that. Um, but what they're not able to do is show you know, anything on that pitch in the video. So, for example, putting a trail on that or two to kind of be able to follow the curvature and spin of the pitch. Um, you mentioned the first and ten line. Is there any way that you can extend that to other sports in other countries? I mean, American football is kind of strange. We've done it that many years. You know, rugby is the only one that can Sure. Um, there are some extensions there. The, it, it may be some of the things we do on kicked balls or, or passed balls more than maybe just a, a first down line per se. Um, you know, in some of the work we do with ESPN, um, we have a product called Kick Track where we can actually um, you know, use that um, object tracking technology, track the ball, and then show you, you know, where it was when it crossed the plane. Uh, that is the, the goalpost. So you can, you know, if it's if it's a low enough kick and it goes between the crossbars or outside the crossbars, it's relatively easy to see. But if it's a kick that's above the crossbars, oftentimes it's kind of hard to tell whether it was in or out, um, for good or no good, I should say. Uh, some of those things also apply in rugby. Obviously, kicking is a much larger part of the game there. Um, we can also do things where we you know can show kick trail, so you can say you know here's the last five kicks that the uh, you know, New Zealand All Blacks took, and you know you can sort of see the trails and see where they're kicking from, and see which of those were successful and which ones weren't. So there are some, some possible extensions there. Okay. Um, are you guys going to be bringing out anything new with the World Cup? And just back to the RF stuff. My understanding is they're talking about implanting RF chips in soccer balls and using it in the World Cup. Yeah. Um, they were talking about that, and there there is a company that has been working on that. Um, what ultimately happened is they 
FIFA ran some tests on the technology and decided it wasn't ready for prime time yet. Um, but that is an example of, of, you know, an RF technology that could potentially work. Um, now, ultimately, what they were trying to do with that technology is something that quite possibly could be a, a full variant. I mean, what they're, what they're trying to show is exactly where that ball is in the most controversial plays. Um, you know, was it a goal or was it not a goal? And usually the reason why it's hard to tell whether it was a goal or not are some of the very same reasons why it would make tracking that ball using RF challenging. Uh, and I think the fact that they didn't ultimately approve the technology sort of bears that out. So, for example, you know, there's a play where, you know, there's a kick made and the goalie dives on it and he's covered up and he's, you know, the ball's on the ground he's laying over it and it's right near the goal line. And, you know, if you can't see the ball... The RF receivers also have a problem seeing the ball. So, where is the RF chip getting the ball? Because it's in the center of the ball, and part of the ball goes over the line, maybe it's a goal, and the RF chip won't even recognize it. Right, so the issue there is that it's a goal if it breaks the plane, but they have to keep the chip in the center of the ball, and they have to use, you know, their understanding of the geometry of the ball to make. Uh, yeah, to make the calculations to say if the chip is in the middle of the ball and the receiver is here and the goal line is here, um, is it a goal or is it not? And I think one of the things they also found is they were having a hard time keeping the chip. I think they were able to come up with a way to insert it such that the performance characteristics of the ball didn't change because obviously if the ball heavier or lighter or kicks differently, then that's an issue. But then you also have to make sure that the performance characteristics change but also that it stays perfectly in the center. Um, and then you have to account for, you know, the real world. You know, if you ever, you know, one of the things we often find when we do football games is that the lines aren't straight. Right? So I've, yeah, American football, right. So, so the lines often aren't straight. So you'd think, you know, you see a field laid out, it's chalk and it's ready for NFL. So the whole line is straighter than the lines on the field? Exactly. And it makes our line look crooked. And so an analogy there, you know, we talk about World Cup is, so let's say you're able to come up with a system, you know, then you often have the issue where you're modeling units to a field at, per, you know, perfect dimension, Well, the chalk may not be perfect dimensions because there's a human laying that chalk down. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all sorts of factors involved in doing something like that. Um, and ultimately, that system may or may not work. We're actually looking at some things in, in soccer as well. Uh, and you were the ESPN, and the ESPN broadcasting the work out here. Yes. Have you seen anything from you during the tournament? Um, cases are probably not. You know, we, uh, we're we still talking about a couple of things, but um, it probably won't work. And the reason why is that ESPN is not actually shooting any of the games. They are, um, you know, there's a FIFA is developing what's called a world feed, which is for an event like this, like the Olympics. You know, you can't have, you know, 30 host nations, or 30 nations coming in each with their own broadcast cameras, you know, trying to do the same thing. So what they do is they set up one host broadcaster and they shoot the game and they provide the feed to each country to put their own graphics on, their own analysis, you know. So for the ESPN games, you know, half of the games are going to be called from the studio in Bristol, Connecticut. It's going to be announcers sitting there sort of pretending they're at the game, calling it, calling it, calling it from a monitor, yeah. Slightly ahead, you know, ours will be a little bit delayed so they have time to look at it, but um, so we're looking at doing some things there, um, but ultimately, um, 
what we want to do. So probably not for the World Cup for this year. But what we want to do um, in soccer fits very much with our strategy overall, which is we're, we're very much looking to uh, develop new and unique content around sports and sporting events. And a lot of that involves tracking of players and balls and, and things like that. Um, you know, I sort of laid out for you earlier what makes a good effect in the, in the sort of the three criteria. Um, from a business standpoint, there's kind of a, you know, that fourth, which is can you also create some unique content uh, around that and what can you do with that? And uh, I think one of the questions we would mention was, uh, you know, ultimately what's the most profitable sport or what's the best sport for sport vision and, and you know, where do those things go? Right now, for us, it's motorsport and sports. And the reason is is that not only are we able to do interesting effects for television and, you know, do great things that allow the viewer to see something they couldn't normally see and enhance their viewing experience, we're also creating this unique content stream that's very informative, and that allows us to develop uh, a product on NASCAR.com that's called um, TrackPath. Mm-hmm. And with TrackPath, you can follow, you know, any driver. You can see any view. You can compare any three drivers, you know, to each other. You can pull up the dashboard of your favorite driver. You can click on the audio. You can be listening to that person, to that driver talking to their pit chief. Um, you can see the dashboard. I mean, you can do all these kind of great things. And if you're a fan of you know, let's say you're a Greg Bissell fan and he's not running in the top ten this week. If you're watching the broadcast, Greg Bissell's not going to get a lot of airtime. So what we find is that, you know, we have a, a very popular subscription product on NASCAR.com. It's got, you know, over 100,000 subscribers. People are paying for this product, and 90% of them are watching the telecast at the same time. So it's not people are migrating away from the TV going to the web. This is a way to enhance the two-screen experience for them. So they can watch the telecast on their TV, but also you know, see their driver and follow their favorite driver at the same time as they're doing that. And so, you know, we're able to go to an event, collect the data, do things for broadcast, do things for internet. We also have a wireless product called TrackPass on the go that you can subscribe to from your phone. You get wireless updates. There's a pay-per-view product on in-demand that allows you to, you know, basically go in that driver's car and, you know, see all kinds of different camera angles and get audio. Um, and those are the types of things that are really good for our business is when we can collect data and then monetize it over a number of different platforms. Mm-hmm. Going back to soccer, um, you know, what we're looking at is ways to track and, and create unique content um, on uh, football matches or soccer matches mm-hmm. and then do sort of the same thing. You look for extensions for the web or for TV or for wireless. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where we're trying to drive our business is, is not just be a television enhancement business, but really be somebody who's in the content business. Oh, yeah, and it's different media is obviously going to help. Um, I mean, the rest of the world probably isn't as, as connected to the Internet as we are, but they're catching up. But they're, in a lot of cases, more advanced than we are in terms of what kinds of mobile devices they have. Yeah. If you go in Japan, you know, their, their handsets for are one or two generations ahead of what we have here. Their networks are faster. Um, so... All the kind of things that we're doing, you know, on the broadcast are really, you know, transfer very well to some of these other devices, and that's also going to, I think, open up some new opportunities for us overseas. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think of baseball, you know, everybody in Japan, you go sit in the subway. Uh, I was just talking to somebody uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, who just got back to Japan. He said, you know, I was in the subway. Uh, he's our, our patent attorney. Mm-hmm. He's over there doing some work. So he says, you know, I was in the subway. I was the only, you know, non-Japanese person. 
and everybody was sitting there, you know, looking at their cell phones, either playing a game or watching a video or text messaging or doing something, you know, that's what, they aren't reading newspapers, they're playing their cell phones, right? And so we talked about going over there and doing things in baseball. Obviously, if we want to be ultimately successful, we need to be talking about how do we take that content, how do I put on your cell phone, you know, a little strike zone so you can see where, the, where every pitch is as part of that game, how do I put, you know, that kind of content and taking it and putting it onto those devices is going to be key, and, and we're working on that, you know, as we speak. Okay, I guess just to finish up different sports extensions, I saw you have two step apps. Mm-hmm. Anybody using that outside of the United Currently, no. Um, Prospect good or using why it hasn't? You know, um, again, I think the things we've done so far in basketball have been interesting, but none of them have been sort of that killer app that, you know, really grabbed your attention. Um, basketball viewership outside the U.S., there's pockets. Um, it's certainly starting to grow uh, in China. It's an interest in Yao Ming. Um, countries like Germany, um, there's some interest. But uh, the NBA kind of builds itself as probably the second most international sport, or at least they're trying to, to pay the most attention on their own. And they're doing a good job. Um, it, I think, you know, a lot of the interest overseas is watching NBA telecast. It's not, you know, where something like soccer is huge, you know, much bigger sport than it is outside the U.S. They're not watching U.S. events. I think with basketball, the NBA has probably been more successful than the other leagues at, at, at transferring the passion for their league um, into, you know, viewership of that sport overseas. So we, we've looked at a few things. Um, again, a lot of things we talked about in hockey and in soccer in terms of you know, developing content, tracking players, tracking the ball. I think all that's applicable to the NBA as well. Um, talk about equestrian. Uh, talk about NASCAR and so on. And anything to add about those from, from what you've discussed before? Um, well, only, you know, in equestrian, I think, you know, we see horse racing as a big opportunity. Probably not so much as a broadcast opportunity because you know, there's really not that much from a broadcast you know, that's big, it's the triple crown which is big right now and obviously drawing a fair amount of attention but um, with horse racing there's so many events going on all the time and you've got a very passionate fan base of betters who uh, seem to have an unquenchable thirst for information about horses and performance and you know types of things we're talking about if we could actually track a horse in real time and be able to you know, give you precise calculations of closing speed and, you know, top speed and, you know, a lot of the things that sort of aren't coming through. I mean, right now, the way, you know, people at the top of their game, the way they measure their horses is they sit there with a stopwatch and watch them at the track and watch them, you know, training horses in the morning. They're sitting there, you know, in the paddock with a stopwatch. So there's a lot, that's a sport that's right for uh, a technology coming in providing a much deeper data set. And interestingly, internationally, I've got to believe Arabic-speaking Muslim markets could be based because places like Saudi Arabia, Dubai, those kinds of places could be the worst Right, exactly. It could be really interesting opportunities. Yeah. Those cultures breaking these kinds of things. Yeah. Could be good international relations. Well, I, I would love to be part of that. 
Yeah, I think they could. Um, you know, a lot of what we're doing in bowling right now is again some of the strobe motion technical effects. Where we're able to show sort of the strobe on the on the ball and see you know the path that that ball took. Um, curling, you know, the, the pace that the stones are moving is not quite as fast. You're not seeing quite as much curvature on the on the shot. So there's probably less insight you can actually provide. For curling things, though, you never know. From what I understand, they're natural. That, 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 I know that to be true, but I, uh, I'm i not sure how we do that yet. And I don't need to make fun of the just because my brother-in-law is a cop. Um, from what I understand, the BBC Saturday morning, they have four gardening shows on at all the same time. So, in some cases, you have no choice but to watch gardening. And I think my point is, What's interesting to some people isn't always interesting to different people. So, and surprising things interest other people. So, uh, you never know. There, there might be a curling application out there. We'll, uh, we'll think about it. Uh, um, I guess to talk about a couple of just general macro issues. Are we doing okay time wise? Yeah. Um, Maybe we got a feature. We can probably speak through that would be helpful. Um, do you see any sports rivaling soccer worldwide? Now, I don't see, if you're talking about global viewership, I mean, outside of the, of the Olympics, um, <clears throat> I don't see anything that's going to be overtaking uh, football anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, it, it, it's got a unique combination of a sport that is played in so many different countries, so people, you know, identify with it and understand it. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of those countries, you know, when they think of the national team, that's the sport they think of. And the World Cup was, I think, really... Uh, you know, had a lot of foresight in setting up that tournament because it, you know, it gets all the sort of great storytelling elements together, the national pride and international rivalries and, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how well the World Cup does in the U.S. this year. I think soccer's poised to finally start breaking out. I know people have been making those predictions for 20 years, but, uh, but a lot of it depends on how well the American team does. And I think they have a chance of doing well this year. Um, have you seen much coverage by Eurosport or high sport in the UK? And how do you think they compare to ESPN? Um, you know, obviously we work very closely with ESPN, so I have a little bit of, of built-in bias. But, um, you know, I think that uh, Sky Sport has, does some interesting things. Um, they do some things with cricket, you know, as I mentioned, with the, the virtual tracking. Um, they've done some things in soccer with, the, with some player tracking and analysis. Um, you know, I think ESPN is really uh, right at the top in terms of you know, ability to, um, you know, produce the high, you know, high-quality events. I think that, you know, certainly all, all the domestic broadcasters, um, Have, have their have their strengths and all do things very well, um, but just from the breadth of the offering and the, and the amount of coverage that they provide, you know, ESPN really is a uh, a powerhouse in that area. But you extend ESPN, are a lot of your effects and technologies deployed on ESPN equipment? Uh, yes, 
So when they're, I mean, they're going to get the same feed as the as generally as the U.S. audience. So anything that we do to enhance the U.S. feed will show up and report this. Um, we do do some interesting things with the um, baseball broadcast so on ESPN on Sunday night, Monday night. This is from the national broadcast window. Um, we put virtually inserted ads behind home plate. So we'll, you know, basically chroma key technology uh, to simplify it. But we'll put, we'll virtually insert an ad, you know, uh, a Gatorade ad behind home plate. So if you're watching the game, you'll see that. Um, we provide actually two sets of those ads. We provide a set of English ads for the domestic broadcast. And three, in the Cortex, we'll put a Spanish ad in there. So you're able to take the same broadcast, the same cameras, same production, and two different content, types of content to two different, uh, you know, viewers. I guess when you look at what you do, do you consider what you're doing enhancing more the sports part of it or the entertainment part? Or is that a, a relevant distinction? Yeah, I, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I probably typically don't make that distinction because to me it's all the same. I mean, at the end of the day, sports is an entertainment business. And it is a business. Um, you know, it's all about, you know, what what works well are some of the, you know, they all have the same key elements. I mean, it's really all about storytelling. You know, what you're trying to do on a sports broadcast is to tell an interesting story and put it in a insightful way and, you know, provide viewer access to things they might not only have. Um, and so, in a way, I think that is entertainment. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's kind of all the same to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, you've already talked about problems you've encountered with the international opportunities. Anything to add to that? Um, no, like I said, I mean, the, the, the two big, two, one of the big barriers is just sort of viewer tastes and preferences. Uh, and then the other is just, you know, Broadcast budgets, and you know, are there are they available to uh, spend money on things like that? And do they do that as a priority? And I think, as you've seen, a lot of things the U.S. tends to kind of lead because it's the largest market. So I I, I think a lot of the types of things we've seen here, you're going to start to see more and more overseas. I know you mentioned that in Europe they like to can you give any other examples of differences in taste and preferences between here and other states? Um, you know, there's something that's worked or hasn't worked. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'd probably go back to some of the examples, you know, I gave before where, you know, some of the Latin American markets tend to be much more um, accepting of those types of things, virtually inserted the telecast um, vis-a-vis a European market. It's going to be more of a clean look. From what I see, it appears that at Sports Vision, or Sports Vision Park, you're a tremendous product development company. And I'm just wondering, and you mentioned your core companies, what makes you so good at what you do? I think at the end of the day, we have a, a, a unique group of very, you know, talented individuals. Talented individuals, you know, we have some great technologists that are just amazing at the things they do. Uh, as evidenced by, you know, the eight Emmys this company has won and all the patents we have. Um, and, you know, we combine that with, uh, you know, 
a group that has a very strong passion for sports and for storytelling and for entertainment and for, you know, creating the best, you know, experience possible. And it's a, it's a really, you know, unique mix of individuals that have kind of all come together, you know, these, so just a, a very wide variety of disciplines needed to, to do that. You know, we've got folks who are, you know, computer vision engineers. We have, you know, uh, mechanical engineers that help build some of these, you know, design some of these very intricate systems that we need to deploy in the field. We've got, um, you know, a manufacturing group. We've got a media production group and a set of artists and 3D animators. And, uh, you know, it's a really, you need a really wide range of skill sets to do all the things that we do. Um, and, you know, I think also we, we work with some great clients. I mean, I mentioned all of the, you know, broadcast networks with Fox and ESPN and NBC and ABC. Um, you know, we get to work with the people at the top of the game um, who are amazing storytellers who, who provide oftentimes a lot of, you know, great insight and vision into kind of the process that we're working on. Because it's, it's usually a very collaborative effect. And it's not like we go off into a dark room and come back, you know, two years later and sort of the broadcaster, here it is, you know, ready to go. You know, very often it's a, it's a collaborative iterative uh, process where we'll work with the client very closely to sort of refine and fine-tune something to the point where it becomes what you'll see, you know, at home when you watch the event. And I guess, is there any way to generalize the technology company more like a creative agency? Um, is there any way you can define sports vision company? You know, or is it simply a combination of automation? And I think it's a combination of those things. At the end of the day, what I ultimately like to describe us as is a content company. It's a company that's out there generating unique and valuable content, um, you know, unique and valuable to the viewer at home because it provides insight and it's the entertainment experience, unique and valuable to the broadcaster or the or the league, you know, or the marketer, whoever the marketer the partner is in that case, in the sense that, you know, it provides a uh, a great business platform for the marketer to tell their story, a great platform for the league in terms of growing the fan base or the network in terms of being able to, you know, get new subscribers on their website. Okay. Um well I'm not sure if it makes sense, but it sounds like there's a lot of different components to what you do. Is there a way to generalize and say your solutions are more software-driven versus hardware-driven? There's got to be network components given all the GPS. Is there any way to keep it characterized, your solution? It's probably more software than hardware, because um, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're using, you know, PCs just like other businesses. You know, we tend to use, you know, very high-end, top-of-the-line graphics cards, you know, the types of things that are going to be on the desks of the folks at, uh, you know, uh, LucasArts and um, uh, Industrial Light and Magic and, you know, those sorts of, you know, very high-end, you know, Pixar, those types of companies. I mean, we're always, you know, we work very closely with some of those uh, video card manufacturers, graphic card manufacturers, and we've always got to make sure we've got the latest and greatest because that provides us more horsepower. But really, the magic that we provide is, I think, in, in the in the software and in the combination of all those different disciplines. Mm -hmm. okay. Are there any technical prerequisites that you folks have when you're looking at putting together a solution? You know, as you mentioned, you know, your criteria and for competition and those kinds of things that if you're going to put something together, is there anything technically that you need to, to work with? Um, 
I mean, I guess so. I mean, at the end of the day, there's probably something. Sometimes you know we're approached on things and we say, you know, that probably doesn't work just because it's either something that um, we think ultimately you know won't provide the value that you know the client thinks it will, uh, something that would be too easily replicatable by someone else. You know, we don't we try, tend not to try to spend our time on things that anybody can do because we have made our business and our name doing the really hard stuff that no one else can do. Um, and sometimes you know we'll look at things and say that's just too hard. You know, that's just, you know, you're asking for something that, you know, probably can't be done for the next couple of years. Uh, one of the things that we've been thinking about for a long time is how to do things in 3D, how to, uh, you know, basically take a live event and translate that in real time into a virtual, you know, moving environment through tracking. And I think ultimately um, we're going to be soon taking some steps along that path. Uh, and when we get there, it will be incredibly uh, illuminating. But uh, it's one of the reasons just, you know, RAM size, hard drive size, you know, some of those basic operating parameters, limitations for this. Um, not, yeah, I mean, some, some of that is. I don't, I don't think that it's, it's processing horsepower, per se. It's not like we're using, you know, supercomputers to, to do these types of effects. Um, it's typically, um, you know, things like, you know, can you can that data be captured and can it be captured reliably? And we're sort of learning all the time about how to how to do some of those types of things. Um, have you run into any localization issues going to other countries? Now, it sounds like you've gone primarily to English-speaking countries that have fewer localization issues. Even looking at state courses, there could be localization issues. Yeah, I mean, generally we're well prepared for those types of things. I mean, you sort of, it's certainly, you know, high on the checklist when you're, when you're doing an event internationally to know that um, you're going to have to deal with those types of things. Um, you know, we do, you know, there's different video formats in different countries. There's um, PAL versus NTSC. Uh, so that's something where, you know, you, you have to sort of work out a few technical issues here and there. Uh, you know, infrastructure sometimes is not quite at the level you would expect in some of the other countries in terms of, uh, you know, power and, you know, reliability and yeah. <laughs> things like that. But so you tend to uh, make some accommodations when you have a generator and make sure you've got, uh, uh, you know, uninterruptible technical power and things like that. But uh, generally, um, we're able to work through those issues. Okay. I thought you won the Illinois Technology Award in 2003. Did that help your business at all? You know, I don't know if it, if it got us any new business. Um, I think anytime you can win an accolade like that, it helps from, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, from an investor standpoint. Uh, they like to see those types of things. Um, but I probably can't point to any one specific thing that was, you know, a benefit of that. I mean, that's all you wanted, so I have a chance to ask about it. Um, I understand that you're also in charge of strategy as sports vision. So there, and I don't want to ask anything surprised there, but is there anything you can say that is in your strategic direction at this point? You know, I've, there are not a lot of secrets here. I mean, what, as I mentioned, you know, the, the big focus that we're putting on right now is trying to move in the direction of um, creating more unique content. And, and that's really the, 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 the primary focus for us right now. Um, how do we take our competencies, our experience, and our skills, 
um, and, and apply them in such ways that not only can we make, you know, great TV, but they also create great content, and content that can be deployed across multiple platforms. You know, you take content, they do primarily visual content, but you can do a lot of audio content to complement that as well. Um, not so much audio content, but, you know, data. So, for example, you know, we, um, when I talk about NASCAR, you know, what we're capturing not, isn't necessarily just visual content, but we're, we're, we're capturing, you know, a digital record of the race in real time of where every car was within, you know, a couple of centimeters. Um, you know, that information is incredibly valuable. You know, for example, you know, one of the things that is, you know, on our list is I hope sometime next year, you know, when you spend your money on your new Xbox 360 and you're sitting at home, um, you know, instead of just watching the Daytona 500, you're actually, you know, adding your own car in real time as the 43rd car into that race. And, you know, through that video game engine, we're pumping a, a stream of data that's rendering all those cars in real time and exact location on the track. And you're sitting there driving a 43rd car, you know, if you're off your video game console. So that, that, those types of examples are where you can, you know, actually take content and data and create something meaningful. That could be I, that could be interactive TV. Um, I actually think of that more as gaming, real-time gaming. I mean, all of the new... Um, gaming console platforms have the ability to, you know, receive data real time. Um, they're all connected to the internet. So, you know, special things, multiplayer games where people are, you know, playing people around the world, you know, that same infrastructure will provide an opportunity to put data onto the console and actually render an event in real time. And participating in a real live event as a spectator, that makes a very cool application. We do as well. Um, and I guess to that longer-term strategy, when you mentioned this particular application, any other long, short-term goals you can mention? Um, you know, that's probably the, one of the, the larger overarching goals right now. Um, you know, short-term, you know, we, we're looking to get some, you know, additional coverage and some, and some other sports that we're not digging right now and, you know, uh, you know set some short-term deals. but. Um, Really, that's kind of the overarching, you know, much more focused on, on other platforms besides just broadcast. Yeah, those platforms being wireless, internet, gaming, gaming, gaming consoles, um, you know, and, and interactive television. So, you know, as I do interactive television, um, it would be, you know, maybe you're watching a baseball game and you have the opportunity to decide whether I want to see a trail on every pitch or a data box that shows me the exact location of that pitch relative to the strike zone and I can you as a viewer have the ability to pull that up and put it there or you know not have it there if you choose to have a you know a cleaner telecast. Mm -hmm. And I guess from a Chicago perspective then, is it an advantage for you to be here in Chicago and to talk to someone like say Midway, which isn't that far? And you know maybe Motorola and wireless and um I don't know who's in the internet, but you know, to have good potential partners, so far. You know, Chicago is, is a is a good location for our headquarters. I think you know, this is one of those businesses where you can kind of be just about anywhere. Um, you know, our, a lot of our clients are the leagues and the networks, which are very New York based. You know, we deal with lots of you know, marketers that are kind of all over. Um, you know, our 
sort of main development headquarters are in Mountain View, California, which is in Silicon Valley. Um, and that's a advantageous location for us in terms of access to talent and, you know, kind of cutting edge engineering. So, in other words, it doesn't sound like well, Motorola, I would say we had. Motorola is actually one of our bigger investors. Um, they invested in us through their venture group, and, and we do talk to them all the time. We're constantly thinking about new things that we can do together, whether it's on ITV platforms and the big set-top box business or uh, handheld. They obviously are big in the wireless handheld business. Um, so, you know, we do we do tend to work with them very closely on a number of things. Um, just, sorry, just from a, a timely standpoint, I've probably got 10 minutes or so. Okay. You've already mentioned Darkfish. Anything you need to add about them? I don't think so. Just to get to your economic model, and we've talked about network advertisers, so we have sort of three primary revenue streams. The largest is uh, what we call licensing, which is kind of what you would expect, which is sort of a network type model. So uh, a network will come to us and say, I'd like to have a yellow line, yellow first down line on each of my games. Um, so they'll sort of pay us a program fee. Um, <clears throat> that's the largest percentage. The next would be um, similar types of technologies but funded by a marketer. So a sponsor will come in and, and um, pay for an effect um, that they can you know, use as a branding platform. So a great example there is what we did in golf for the FedEx reliability zone. Um, that was uh, a program we conceived directly with them where um, their marketing platform is reliability. That's, you know, very important then. So we came up with a effect called the reliability zone which had things like uh, you know, landing areas on a park five and say, this is a special liability zone. If you land in this shaded purple area on the fairway, purple and orange being the FedEx colors, um, you, know, you have a better than average chance of getting a birdie on this hole or landing zones on the green or driving accuracy. So we can see a lot of different effects that we're able to do, you know, using virtual imaging to reinforce their, their branding and their technology. And it gets them, you know, out of the 30-second spot when people are changing channels or going to the kitchen and puts them in the telecast um, and, you know, something that, you know, it's not going to be skipped over when I'm TVOing the events and I, you know, fast forward to the commercials. The third stream is subscriptions. And that's the fastest growing piece of our revenue. So things like the track pass um, on NASCAR.com where we develop a subscription offering. Um, right. And I guess that's the fastest growing, which is the biggest. Licensing is the biggest, then uh, marketing supported or advertising supported, and then subscriptions. But I expect in the next couple of years that subscriptions will move into second place, and uh, long term could be, you know, the biggest of all the three. Um, and it's back to the international side. What percentage of revenue comes from outside of the U.S. right now? Um, you know, it varies year by year, but probably between five and ten percent. Definitely. Um, we are 
profitable um, based on you know sort of a, our measure of profitability. Um, and you know this is a company that started you know in the, at the height of the technology and internet boom, and so we uh, we had some lean years you know profitability wise, but um, I can say we we pulled out of that and are now profitable. Yeah. Cool. Um, you in California, what do you have to do? Uh, that's our head salesperson, lives in Milwaukee. And again, that's one of those jobs that can be done just about anywhere. It's mostly, you know, you get a, you know the phone or the computer, or you need to be sitting face to face, and people are all over the place. So he, uh, he spends a fair amount of time on the, uh, uh, traveling. Yeah, we did. We had an office there for a number of years, and um, we based our creative group out of there um, because of the proximity to advertising agencies and networks and leagues. Um, and what we ultimately found is while it was beneficial in that regard, we really needed to have our technology group and our creative group together because when we do our best work, it's when those groups are working very closely together. So we uh, closed that office down and, and relocated the group out to California, and we've seen uh, good benefits of, of that. Okay. And, you know, do you have offerings in the Dark Fish or any other international locations? You know, my goal is to have as few locations mm -hmm. as possible. <laughs> That's the CFO uh, in me. Talk about gaining wireless internet. Um, any other new media that you're going to need to? Uh, no, those that's all covered. And you talked about the application for interactive TV. Any other interesting applications that you're going to need to Um, you know, there's a lot of you know futuristic stuff. I think you know where we're going. I think you know ITV, the ability to you know selectively add and delete elements of content and to sort of customize that viewing experience. Um, that's the direction we're going to gaming, console, I mentioned the platforms, being able to sort of, you know, virtually add yourself to a, an event in real time. Um, you know, those types of things are um, the direction we're going in. Um, you mentioned Skynet, we're doing a couple of things. Anything else you see that is interesting? Uh, People might want to know about this. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I, I think um, this is one of those areas where the U.S. is actually you know, doing some of the most interesting stuff out there right now. That's a, a typical American response, probably to most questions. But in this case, I think you know, technology-wise and sort of um, you know attitude and viewership that in this case is actually applicable. Just a couple more. Personal question. Um, I thought you looked for Sears. What similarities are there working at Sears and Sears? I mean, I think the differences are obvious. Mm -hmm. Differences are obvious. Um, you know, my experience with Sears, I was there for a couple of years in the uh, mid 90s, uh, mid to end 90s, and uh, really what I was focusing on there was helping uh, Sears solidify a strategy around launching Sears.com. Uh, at a time when people weren't really quite sure, you know, what the internet was all about and how that was going to translate to a commerce platform. Uh, so that was a really valuable experience for me. I helped, you know, helped start up Sears.com and launched some of the first, 
categories of, of uh, merchandise, you know, major appliances was one of the first projects I worked on. People were like, well, how can you sell a washer and dryer over the web? I don't understand how that works. You know, at the time, it was a very foreign concept. Um, and so it was a great experience kind of working with a sort of iconic, classic company um, that had just tremendous assets and enormous market share in a number of categories and sort of figuring out, you know, the web and how things and how to transact with customers. And so all of that uh, was very applicable to what we were doing now. We talked about launching products and subscriptions and, um, you know, building applications for the website. Um, now, the other side of that is, um, you know, working in a Fortune 50 company compared to a 50-person company is, is quite different and uh, refreshing in many ways. But that also doesn't necessarily mean that Sport Vision necessarily has the dot-com part of it as as huge in the future. Um, in other words, the internet subscription obviously are growing. That's part of NASCAR.com and Sport Vision.com, right? Well, but we our goal is not to grow sportvision.com, right? Our our success it, our success comes when we work um, and leverage you know brands of our clients. I mean, for me to create a destination that's going to get the traffic of pjtour.com or nascar.com or nfl.com, I mean, I don't know that there's a marketing budget big enough to do that. Uh, and you know, in this way, we're able to partner with. Uh, or from Major League Baseball.com. You know, this way we're able to partner with the league who's got the traffic, who's got the brand, who's got the fans, um, you know, avidity to, to get them there um, and help them develop, you know, great, unique, compelling content and then figure out a way for us to you know, benefit in that as well. So for us, that's a much more um, rational business strategy than trying to create our own destination. Okay. And I guess the last question is some about something to give it your experience at the University of Chicago, Notre Dame, and if you speak foreign languages, what kind of personal experience has it contributed to your international experience? Uh, probably the biggest was, um, you know, I, I did a foreign, exchange, a foreign study program my sophomore year in college and lived in Austria for a year. Um, and took, you know, for 10 months, lived over there my first time out of the U.S. Um, so so I mean basically I went from a situation where I didn't speak any German, uh, and six months later I was, you know, living in the country full time, taking half my classes in German at a, at, a, at an Austrian university. So uh Innsbruck. Yeah. So uh quite a bit. Um I, I grew quite accustomed to the European school calendar. Every every Friday off, February off, three weeks of Christmas, two weeks of Easter, fall break, spring break. It was it's not a bad not a bad gig. Um, but you know that experience of living you know, overseas was I think uh, a pretty pretty important experience for me, and, and certainly something that helped shape my view of you know doing business internationally and um, helping provide some perspective. Yeah, I mean, how did you work in Munich? I'm sure you were in the U.S. in Austria. 1986. Oh, okay. Exactly the time I was in Munich. Really? I could have, like, pushed by you. Yeah, I'm in Munich. Just a short train ride, yeah. Maybe several trips to Munich. Not just for the Oktoberfest, but
cool. Anything else that you think is important for e-query users to know about sports vision, what you're doing internationally? Um, I mean, I try to be comprehensive given maybe not so limited time constraints, but anything else important to come up? No, no, I mean, I think um, we've done a good job of covering all the areas. I think, um, you know, it's, uh, we, we hope to, to, you know, I'll serve as an example of a company that's, you know, based in, in the Midwest, based in Chicago, that's doing some interesting work in a high-profile way and, you know, hopefully creating opportunities for, uh, you know, both locally and, you know, for, for the viewers at home. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Didn't need to take so much time. Thank you.